Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to episode 90 of Conquering Columbus. And today on the show, we have Mr. Jeff Schumann. And Jeff has done a lot of interesting things. He's the CEO and co-founder over at Wiretap. And uh, he's even turned down a job for Mark Zuckerberg in his time. Had a lot of crazy experiences. So uh, definitely tune in. Hope you guys are going to enjoy this episode. And as always, hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show, and it'll make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities, maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to Mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we've got Jeff Schumann, and Jeff is the CEO of Wiretap and a co-founder as well, an intelligence platform that helps enterprises secure data and mitigate threats to accelerate the adoption of their collaboration technology. Think Slack, Microsoft Teams, and Skype. Before Wiretap, Jeff has founded a few other companies and even spent some time over at Nationwide working as the Director of Digital Marketing, Social, and Collaboration. And to top it all off, he's an Ohio State grad, and welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you, guys. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. We're really excited to have you on the show today, and uh, how's your day going so far? It's been busy. You know, Mm -hmm. the world I come from, I feel like every day is just stacked. So it's uh, it's not going to end after this, but uh, yeah, it's been been quite a day. What's it stacked with this part of the year, these times that you got going on? Oh, man, this is a busy time for us specifically. I mean, we're in the middle of fundraising for our next round, so we're looking to bring in some additional capital to keep the company growing and 
sustaining and uh, that's just constant investor management. And so my day is filled, filled with meetings with investors most likely. So yeah, I'll probably go from here and have, have another meeting most likely. So before we dive into that in too much yeah. detail, maybe we'll start back at the beginning and just talk yeah. a little about your childhood and your path to Ohio State, and then we can uh, kind of take it one step at a time from there. Yeah, sure. Um, so I actually grew up on the East Coast, just outside of New York City. Uh, moved here, the state of Ohio, when my parents relocated. But even, you know, kind of growing up, uh, my life, I know, it, I don't, it's really interesting in the sense that many people probably didn't get started with business as, as early as I did. I was probably that kid who was you know, six, seven years old who had a, a huge video game collection and was trying to you know, find ways to rent video games out to your neighborhood friends and all that sort of stuff. And um, I was doing that while also playing sports and trying to find ways to, to keep active, just like a typical kid. Um, I think you know, it got to the point where you know, I had a pretty large you know, base of friends out of New Jersey and then parents said, you know what, we're moving to Ohio. And I said, what's Ohio? <laughs> You know, and uh, the Jersey thing surprises me a little bit. Not to interrupt the story, but it's yeah. like much less like much more self-reserved and calm. Like we, I mean, meet some really good people from Jersey, but they just tell you how it is, and like it's like nonstop, and like you you want to get a word in, it's like good luck, man. Yeah. <laughs> this Jersey guy's got you conquered. Like, That's true. I mean, most of my family is that way. I would say um, my 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 direct parents, mom and dad, aren't like that. But you're totally right. I mean, it's definitely a different personality when you look at somebody from Jersey compared to Ohio. I mean, we think generally people from Ohio are incredibly nice. Uh, you can tell just from like just driving here, right? People are, are overly nice. I was waiting at a light, just like almost wanting to scream at this car in front of me because they weren't turning when there's a ton of space in front of them. Uh, and in New Jersey, they'd be all on their horns, right? And I think people are generally just like like in a rush probably more and that just creates a certain personality. But yeah, I I hope that by now I'm, I'm more described like an Ohioan than a New Jerseyan. I, I would have picked Ohio. I don't even know if it's not nice because I think like Jersey people are like authentically just like as good people. Like Ohio people might be more dangerous because they'll hate you and just not tell you. And a Jersey person will be like, I hate you. And you're yeah, like, well, right to your face, right? right. This yeah. is tough to handle, yeah. but I appreciate yeah. you being so transparent. It's, about uh, it. One of the things my mom tells me is that I need to be more empathetic. Uh, it, I, and you're totally right. I think that generally uh, most that know me and know me really well, I will be the guy that will just tell you exactly what I'm thinking. And oftentimes I'll be like, damn, should I have said it that way? Or, And the most people, I think, they generally are appreciative of it because want to know the truth, but not everybody is, is open in today's day and age just telling you how it is, right? But maybe my upbringing on the East Coast maybe helped with some of that. So Yeah, so let's let's jump into Ohio State. Uh, first off, why did you choose the Buckeyes? And uh, you studied management information systems. Kind of what was that experience like? Yeah, so um, Ohio State for me was my number one choice. There was really nothing else I was really considering. I had applied to Purdue and um, University of Michigan and some of the other schools around, but frankly, the matter, or frankly, like when I had toured multiple campuses, once you come down to Columbus and see Ohio State, I mean, I fell in love right away. I knew there was nowhere else I wanted to be. Um, just comparing Ohio State campus to like uh, Miami and Purdue and Indiana University, I needed stuff around. Like coming from New Jersey, maybe, and just outside of New York City, there's so much activity and there's so much stuff happening that I wanted to get back into that lifestyle. Like I wanted stuff 
to do. And I felt like after seeing Ohio State campus and seeing how fast the city of Columbus was growing, there was just no question that's where I wanted to be. And when it came down to management information systems, for me, kind of out of high school, I was already doing a ton of stuff. And uh, I know we'll, we'll probably get into a few of these different things, but I had already built a few different companies. And it was around 2001 when 9-11 happened. And I, at that point in time, my mind kind of shifted and said, I want to go in the military. I want to go fly, you know, fly fighter jets. I want to do whatever I can do to help um, help out the United States cause. And I found out during that time that uh, when I was you know, going through training and stuff that I had a heart condition that would not allow me to fly fighter jets at a certain G-force without passing out. So suddenly I said, crap, can't do that. Um, what else can I do? And had and you already enlisted at that point? Like, were you? No, I was okay. just I was I was preparing for it. So okay. I was going through the, the all the training you needed to do to be able to get to that next step. Luckily, I found out beforehand that I didn't uh, wasn't going to be able to do that. And so it kind of came to this point in my life where I said, okay, what route do I want to go down? And I actually, when I applied to Ohio State, I applied to um, the criminology degree because I wanted to become an FBI you know, agent. And my first year at Ohio State. I think something mentally clicked. I had businesses that were already built that were going really well. And I said, you know what? I want to further invest in this space and try to understand business and technology and what degree helps me really get a good understanding of both. And I, I felt like at that time, it was probably management information systems. I think Ohio State now has you know, a, a bulk of other classes and different degrees that would help out. And there's even the entrepreneurship program that didn't exist when I was going there. Uh, so it was probably the best thing for me at that stage. Our third partner actually on the back, and that was his exact major. I think that it kind of gave him the same really well-rounded approach. He, he sticks more to the corporate side of things. He likes corporate um, structure, I guess, and like big companies. But I mean, his knowledge of business coming out of undergrad and just the way that he was able to jump into such a high role was a lot because yeah. of what prepared him through Fisher. So that's it's such a great point. I think if you if you become an engineer, I mean, or you go to College of Engineering, you're going to learn a lot about how to code and all that sort of stuff. But what I liked about MIS, just like your, your other partner, is that you can learn how to code, but you also kind of get the other side of the, the coin. And that's all the other things that come with business, you know, the accounting aspects, the financial aspects. Um, and the things that I now run into and deal with every day that I look back and say, thank God, you know, I went and did MIS because I probably wouldn't have had any knowledge of this or at least enough to, to be dangerous. Uh, and so I'm happy I did that. I think it helped set me up for being a CEO of this company and doing some of the things I've, I've done since graduating from Ohio State. Before we jump too much into that story, just jump back a minute. What originally brought your parents to Ohio? You said that they just up and ready. Yeah, what was so that funny. Um, my dad works for Owens Corning, or used to work for Owens Corning. He retired. Uh, I think one of your, uh, you guys uh, worked yeah, for Joe, the Corning, kid right? I just mentioned works, yeah, for, works for Owens Corning. And uh, he, was, he was transferred from New Jersey to Toledo area, and I followed along with the family at that time. And uh, he, was a, he was an IT, so I, I feel like anything that I've you know, learned along the way in the technology space, I probably learned from my dad at some point, and then inevitably you get to that point where you learn more than your parents. And I think you know, he recognized that at some point in his life, and he's like, oh, man, Jeff, what Jeff is doing now you know, is just you know, way over my head. <laughs> But uh, that was uh, probably when, by the time I was maybe a freshman in high school, I was learning pretty fast. But yeah, his move and his transfer brought me to this state, so. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So from there, let's kind of jump into your experience after college leading up to Wiretap, maybe like a 10,000 foot overview of sure. some of your different sure. roles and experiences you had leading along the way. Yeah, no, good, good, good question. I mean, um, graduating high school and going into college, I had built a few different things that were 
gaining heavy traction. Um, I was actually around that 2001 2000 to 2000, probably six uh, time frame. I when I couldn't find a way to get into the military to help support by by flying fighter jets, and I said I was going to go to college. I did do that, but during that period of time as well, um, I really taught myself a lot about the dark web. And I know it's like a huge jump, but I was so into technology at that time that I wanted to know everything about it. And in the dark web at that time, Al Qaeda was using it pretty heavily. Uh, to communicate back and forth, and I found my way through their uh, different networks online and ultimately launched a startup called Tracking Terrorism. And what we did was uh, we used machine translation software, we um, found our ways into Al-Qaeda communication channels, would decrypt and then translate the communications shared among the jihadists online and share it for the American media to see as well as American citizens, and that blew up. Tons of people every single day. We were suddenly being um, quoted by you know sites like CNN, Fox News, ABC, so on and so forth. And we were intercepting Bin Laden videos before others were seeing it. Uh, it wasn't long before the CIA, specifically out of Jordan, had approached uh, asking whether or not they you know we'd be willing to work with them for a period of time. Uh, and that was a short stint. Essentially, what that was was we would share communications with a specific analyst that uh, worked with the CIA and they would in turn translate it with human translators and also give us content to post that they were finding. And this was their way to psychologically kind of mess with Al-Qaeda jihadist cells because the stuff they were giving us to post wasn't actually intercepted communications among Al-Qaeda cells. So it would, it would appear to Al-Qaeda, who is now viewing our website, Tracking Terrorism, that their own brothers were saying things that they actually weren't saying. It was written by a CIA analyst somewhere who was using that as a way to try to psychologically mess with the cells. And I, I learned a lot about uh, communications and how networks work. Uh, networks meaning social networks, people. And that became really important to what we're doing today. Um, but I also, on top of that, while that was going on and becoming successful, I had built a software application that was specifically made for uh, the TV show Big Brother, which is on CBS. I somehow got addicted to that forever ago when Survivor and, and Big Brother came on at the same time. Uh, and that grew to about 100,000 customers um, around the world who would use that to watch the live feeds uh, from the show on their computers and uh, led to some interesting stories at that time. And then built a social network called Fit Profile. I mean, I was approached by bodybuilding.com at that time. Um, with an interest to acquire that technology. And then I found myself at Ohio State and saying, what am I going to do next? I'm an MIS student. i got to figure out what I want to do. Yahoo came and offered a position. And long story short, I was hired out of a bar to go work at Nationwide Insurance. So that's, uh, that's kind of the quick go around. So you had two or three successful exits before you even graduated college? Yeah, I was doing a lot. Um, I was probably that kid that you, know, you would never see too much you know, out during high school and college, he was, I was always the, the guy in the dorm who was never hanging out, never drinking, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and in high school prior to that, uh, most of my friends would call and say, you're going to come out and like do stuff? And I was doing stuff. It was just at home on a computer. And I actually really got into computers. I didn't even touch on this because I was a big gamer. I, I became a professional gamer, long story short, when I was in college as well at the same time playing a, a game called Counter-Strike. And when I was playing Counter-Strike, that uh, from probably my freshman year of high school all the way through uh, my sophomore year of college, I learned a lot about technology, computers, all that sort of stuff. And it, and it helped me meet a lot of people along the way. But yeah, I was, that, I was that nerd who didn't hang out with people 
during high school and college. And uh, when I, the second I quit sports um, and went tech, the tech route, that's probably when you know, I, I was the one who was often difficult to find. Could you imagine the Sunday brunches that you go to? Like, well, what'd you do last night, Jeff? You're like, uh, well, I was just deciphering jihadist messages. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, what right. bar did you uh, go to, buddy? Like, <laughs> and the other thing that I'm confused about, so I, I'm not big on technology. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know if Josh knows the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it because I don't know. What is the dark web? Yeah, well, back at that. How many bitcoins do you own? Because I bet a lot. Oh, we could, have, we could have a whole conversation about <laughs> cryptocurrency. <laughs> I actually built an application just a few weeks ago to track my big, or my uh, cryptocurrency trading. It runs in my Mac. You know, it's task pretty easy. Just cut it by half every day. That's right. Just yeah. Today it's not it's not looking too hot. But um, yeah. So at the time, the dark web is very different than how it exists today. I mean, the dark web it's as simple today as downloading a specific browser and encrypting your connection if you're doing it appropriately and, and browsing kind of unmapped you know, territories and all that sort of stuff on the internet. But back then it wasn't as, I would say it's not, it wasn't as simple. I mean, at that time there were technologies like um, uh, IRC that was pretty rampant and there were underground servers for tracking communications over internet relay chat, which is IRC. Uh, and then there were some uh, websites that were generally unmapped IP addresses that you could get to via normal browsers, but you really kind of had to know how to encrypt your traffic or map it in a way that they thought you were actually originating from their location and stuff. And it wasn't as simple as it was today. But uh, yeah, I was I was probably doing things I shouldn't have been doing at that point in time. I, I remember when tracking terrorism ultimately came to a stop, I was we were actually hacked by Al-Qaeda out of Turkey. And they took out all of our servers, all of our um, material, and they even sent emails to my family members. They sent emails to us basically letting us know that you need to stop doing what you're doing or you know we will find you and we will we will kill you and that was at that point in time I think my parents and and everyone that kind of knew me said okay maybe now is when you should focus on some other things instead of this um, and so I did I would call it a pivot or whatnot uh, I made the collective choice at that point in time to, to just focus on doing other things so you got the gig nationwide out of you sitting at a bar. How did that kind of play out? <laughs> that's a story that's often told by some of the nationwide VPs that are still there. Um, there was actually an event that was uh, being hosted at, at Gordon Beerish in downtown Columbus and the Arena District specifically. And I was there with a bunch of other students, some from Harvard, MIT, some of the other more tech you know, schools and Ivy League schools. And I wasn't really anticipating actually going to nationwide. It was so unlike me, meaning having been an entrepreneur, having already built companies, having already known that this is kind of the route I want to go down, do your own thing, challenge the status quo, all that sort of stuff. I mean, why would you take a job at a white collar you know, insurance company? And the reason I did in the conversation I had that night at the bar was because the way everything was really pitched to me was they were looking for somebody to come in and change the culture of nationwide and build new technology. And that found actually, I found that incredibly exciting because it sounded hard. I've, I've never wanted to do easy stuff through my, my life, and I felt that by taking that position, it wouldn't be something that I could just you know, read a book or read an internet website and figure out how to do. It was literally go into a company, um, bring a different perspective to the table, and build new technology that all employees would use to help them be more productive and engaged, and, and I had a blast while doing that. I find it kind of surprising, and I don't mean it in a derogatory way at all, but I didn't realize that Nationwide, you know, was attracting talent from, like, Harvard and, and Ivy League schools like that. So was the position that you were looking at just, like, 
pretty well thought yeah, about? Yeah, it, it was a new organization. It was called the New Technology Introduction Organization. So specifically, it was for building new technology for Nationwide. And I would have said the same thing, right? In your shoes, um, Nationwide, how could you be recruiting you know, students from Harvard and MIT and all that sort of stuff? And I think um, what most people didn't know was that the organization that they were building that I ultimately ended up leading was a subculture within the company. It operated like a startup within Nationwide, and it still exists, and there's still great people there uh, leading it, doing great things. But if you look at it from the outside, I think most would say that's just an insurance company and there's not many cool things happening. And my goal was to go out there and change that and let people know that, um, no, you actually, there are actually really uh, amazing things being built here, but not everybody has eyes on it. Not everybody can see it. And you're totally right. From the outside, you wouldn't expect it. Yeah, I think they're a pretty forward-thinking company, John. They recently met the person who's heading the um, venture capital arm that they started on the yep. inside, and he said it's very much the same way. They operate as their own little startup, and they're kind of like off their side. But I mean, they obviously have a massive amount of funding, which That's is right. nice, so they can be pretty flexible with their decisions. That's right. That's a good team of people. Yeah, we were talking to them about at Wiretap, actually, not too long ago. And, and you're right. There are, there are certainly pockets of the company, just like any large organization, where it's, it's like its own little thing. You know, and, and the new technology team and the venture team and a lot of other areas of Nationwide are, are almost subcultures within the entire company. And I think what you're starting to see at other large companies is that it changes over time, meaning the whole culture changes because younger generations are moving in and expecting different things and they're becoming leaders at these companies and, and it's changing for the better. So it's, it's all good stuff. Yeah, and I think you see it a lot of time. I mean, just in our industry for, for FMX, I mean, you see a new facilities manager come in and he's like, why are we still doing things with paper? <laughs> you know, and it, it's like a similar effect to at a much larger scale for big companies like Nationwide or Owens Corning, where you have young people coming in and kind of changing and shifting, not just the culture, but where the company is heading, the direction, the, the projects that they're going to pick up. But uh, can we talk a little bit about... Um, how long did you spend at Nationwide? Yeah, I was there for about uh, seven years. Okay. So. And you, you started at what age? Uh, got right out of school. So I would have probably been 22, 23 at that point in time. Assuming your earliest start, I was going to think it was like 16. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. uh, and so from Nationwide, uh, where did you go once you'd finished up those seven years? So there was a lot that was happening towards the end of my career at Nationwide. Um, we were becoming pretty successful. The things that we had done had already started to gain international recognition. Forbes started to talk about Nationwide from an uh, innovation perspective and a collaboration perspective. The Wall Street Journal had written articles. I had already started to travel around the world talking about the success that we've had. And it was at that point in time that uh, Mark Zuckerberg actually you know, reached out specifically and was looking to ultimately build a product specifically targeted towards enterprises. And they were looking for somebody that could go lead that, that whole new product and that organization, but they needed somebody that understood enterprise and would also be able to you know, succeed in the small business world, called Facebook at that point in time. It was nowhere near the size as what it is right now. Uh, and so at the time I was already building Wiretap, which we'll, we'll talk about, but um, I had this big decision I had to make having met Mark and having met the rest of the leadership team at Facebook. And it was, do you focus on, on somebody else's vision right now and go help Mark tackle the world? Uh, which I, I, I definitely believed that they were gonna be successful at that point in time. But the thing I was battling was, what about doing your own thing? which you've already kind of started, which was wiretap at that point in time. And 
I, I made the decision as hard as it was um, to ultimately stay and, and focus on building the company that we were just beginning to get off the ground, and that's Wiretap today. So Zux just calls you up or he slips into your Insta DMs. Like, how does that work? It was, uh, it was actually kind of a, a, a br- brutal process in a good way. Um, I was actually talking at first with a guy named David Recordin. He ended up being the, one of the head, of, uh, head technology leaders in the Obama White House uh, after, afterwards. But I was talking to him. Uh, How'd that like, connection start? So I actually have friends that work at Facebook that kind of kicked this all off. And they said, we know somebody that you know, would, would be really good at this position. And they passed my name around and they passed some of the success that we had had at Nationwide. And ironically, when the recruiters, uh, the executive recruiters in that division reached out, they said, why should we even be talking to you? You're at Nationwide in Ohio. Most people don't even know where Ohio is on the map. Why should we expect that you should would have be, hung up on a right? Day, I almost bro. did. I mean, frankly, it was uh, it was it was it was brutal, and uh, I decided to at least, and it's advice I, I give to people that I mentor today. You know, take the call and have the conversation, and I did that. Uh, but yeah, it wound up leading to conversation after conversation after conversation. I, I uh, personally you know, met with Mark. Had a you know great. It was an hour conversation with Mark. Calculated how much that cost at that time for him, which is outrageous to even think about. Um, and then met with Mike Schrepfer. Mike was the CTO and is the CTO of Facebook. He ultimately was the founder of Mozilla and leads the technology division of Facebook. And it was an interesting process at that time. They basically all shared the same vision that Facebook was going to be, and Mark believed specifically that it was going to be the, the social graph for the world, and you should only have one social network, whether that be uh, Facebook when you're at home or Facebook when you're at work. And the challenge that they were trying to get over was making it acceptable to use Facebook while you're at work, which led to this new product uh, being created called now. It's called Workplace by Facebook. And that's one of the things that ultimately I would have had the opportunity to to be heavily invested in having been there. But it was a great process. Um, uh, I think that the whole team there is bullish on everything that they do, and they firmly believe in their vision as a company. and, And they're really, really smart people. And... I have nothing but good things to say about Facebook, and now they're they're a partner of ours today at Wiretap. So, anyways, carrying oh, on that. Oh, another thing I'm curious too: did they? Can we talk about? Did they offer you any um, equity partnership or anything like that at that point? At Facebook? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, this is a big turndown, and this is like a serious leap for you. Yeah, to- I mean, it ultimately. I mean, the conversation I was having with my family, uh, being quite frank, uh, was in the neighborhood of Jeff. I mean, this is. The sort of offer that's on the table is one that's going to impact many generations for you. And uh, when you start to think through it about the impact that it's going to have on your kids and your kids' kids, you suddenly lose sight of you know what matters most to you. And I started to I think lose sight of that a little bit. And I had to really sit back and remember why am I why do I exist? What am I trying to do with my life right now? And uh, and it just, you know, I came to the conclusion that, you know, where I belonged and what I really needed to do was was work on my own thing. And, and I decided to stay here and do that. But you're you're definitely right. I mean, the equity was thrown, you know, cash, all that sort of stuff that you would expect for a significant position like that. Uh, but I, I know I made the right call. Yeah. So so let's talk a little bit about Wiretap and uh, where did the idea come from and, and what's the problem Wiretap's trying to solve? Yeah, so while actually at kind of at Nationwide, as I was meeting with other enterprises around the world, kind of talking about enterprise collaboration and innovation, I recognized along the way that as new employees were entering the workforce, they wanted to use these 
these new technologies, these new messaging systems, think Slack, like you said earlier, and, and at the time, you know, Facebook Workplace was going to be coming about. It wasn't, it didn't exist yet. Uh, Microsoft, Skype, and, and other technologies, just think messaging tech. Uh, employees wanted to use those. They, they didn't want to email all the time. I mean, how often do we send emails today? You don't, you don't really use it too much, and, and when you do, it's a thoughtful process. But they wanted to use these new technologies, and the challenges that we always had and that other enterprises had was that, well, these newer generations of employees thought that it would be easy to just join an enterprise like an Owens Corning or a Nationwide and just use these things. Generally, they were blocked. And the reason why they were, uh, they're blocked oftentimes is because the company as a whole has concerns around certain things. And generally, that's um, are employees using it in productive ways? Are they using it to do bad things? Are you know, people wasting time? Are we going to be you know, out of compliance because we're AIG or we're a large company and we have to worry about people talking about mergers and acquisitions and private messaging you know, before it's public nature? And if they do that, we're going to be fined millions of dollars by the SEC. And so the easy answer at that time was just block all this stuff. And we said, uh, you know what, there's got to be a better way. Um, rather than blocking this technology, can't you just build some AI-driven you know, a thing that would ultimately help organizations uh, turn on and enable these technologies, these messaging technologies for all their employees? And so that's essentially what Wiretap has become, is it's an intelligence layer that integrates with you know, Facebook Workplace, uh, Microsoft Teams, and Yammer, and all these different messaging products that studies employee usage over these different tools. Uh, think back to the almost the tracking terrorism days, right, where you're studying how people kind of network. At that time, it was jihadist cells. But this is really studying how people communicate on a day-to-day -day basis and being able to identify high-risk behavior, nefarious activity or malicious activity, um, perhaps sexual harassment happening you know, in different areas of private messaging, which does happen. I mean, we've seen it with Uber now, and you've seen it with you know, large companies where they just they lose sight of the fact that there's millions of interactions happening on a daily basis in these technologies, uh, and if there's not an easy way to really understand how it's being used in, in negative ways or perhaps very very malicious ways, uh, it can cause a lot of harm and damage both to people but also to the company financially. And rather than turning it off and blocking it for everybody, we said let's build a technology that studies human interaction identifies risk and is able to go out there and self-manage it effectively. And that's what Wiretap has become. Yeah. So just to recap, to make sure I'm understanding everything properly, mm -hmm. you basically are taking the challenge of not being able to just redirect what people are saying and, and respecting their privacy, but at the same time, keeping security and compliance and a monitoring system on these platforms so they can operate inside these different organizations without um, hitting any compliance issues or absolutely and you brought up privacy which is a great point because um, everybody's always going to ask right wiretap even the name right you're listening to all communications you're looking at communications that are happening across the enterprise and some of the things that some people don't recognize is that sort of monitoring technology has been in place for dozens of years across email right making sure that emails you know are being sent that aren't aren't violating corporate policy or sec regulations all that sort of stuff uh, but these new messaging technologies didn't have a way to easily monitor them, and that's why uh, technologies like ours uh, exist, to be able to provide eyes on that sort of stuff. But the point on privacy, one of the things that, that we look at and we are looking at pretty heavily is as we are studying human behavior and interaction in the enterprise, we actually want to provide useful insight back to you as an employee that helps you move through your career a lot faster. Like for instance, if I know how interaction is happening at the company and I know for instance that 
um, you perhaps are, are becoming a great performer and maybe you want to be the head of sales at this organization or um, the CEO. Uh, oftentimes you don't necessarily know how that individual or individuals, uh, what, what is their digital makeup? Like what does their DNA look like? How do I become the CEO of Apple? What does Tim Cook look like? Uh, and so we are actually starting to map out you know, human profiles within the enterprise to be able to provide coaching and feedback and useful insight back to the individual employees so they can help you know, further advance themselves within their careers by mapping themselves to other individuals they'd like to be. And even beyond that, um, we just want to get ahead or help the world get ahead of issues that have become so prevalent today, like harassment and gender bias and all that sort of stuff you're seeing and we would hopefully exist in a world in the near future that you can predict that that stuff is going to happen before it happens uh, and only focus on monitoring the high-risk employees versus um, everyone as a whole for instance yeah, so I'm curious is it so the, the AI you guys are using is it a self-learning AI or are you guys coding it yeah it's um, it's so we, we just like any entrepreneur, when you're building a company, one of the decisions you have to make is do you buy it or do you build it? And we went through that whole process of do you buy you know, cognitive capability that exists on the internet today or build it? Uh, the evaluation that we did, we actually found that um, a lot of the cognitive AI-driven capability that might you know, be useful for a company like us um, wasn't as accurate. And the reason why it wasn't as accurate was because those cognitive solutions are trained off of public communications. Think like Wikipedia comments, Twitter comments, all that sort of stuff. And we needed a solution that was trained off how we actually speak in the business world, the corporate world. And it's very different than how you tweet unless... You know, you're the president of the United States. He's probably the only person that, that tweets exactly you know, what he's thinking. But, um, but yeah, so we found that in order for us to do what we need to do effectively and create something valuable for the enterprise, you had to train some AI network off of actual interaction that exists within the enterprise. And so we've now partnered with over 200 enterprises who have um, provided us with data to be able to train our convolutional neural networks off of to be able to better identify what you know digital human behavior really looks like in, the, in an organization like a nationwide or you know, maybe even a JP Morgan Chase. And uh, so we went down the route of building our own technology for that. It's probably something we'll look to license at some point in time in the future as others you know, want to find ways to really understand human behavior in the enterprise. Uh, but right now we're using it ourselves. The, the neural network has got to be like one of the coolest things. Like I'll nerd out over the neural network for a while, but I mean, for example, the one I always think of, I mean, and I'm pretty sure Google's DeepMind, that's a neural network, mm -hmm, correct? Mm -hmm. And Google's DeepMind played chess against itself for like two hours and crushed the single best artificial intelligence we have, Stockfish, for chess. And it's like the possibilities are crazy, but looked like Josh had uh, something he was going to ask. You get there. him down this horrible wormhole, and then he'll start talking about how he thinks we're all like a simulation on a grid. It's like, I'll, I'll, pull, us, I'll pull us away before you have to suffer. <laughs> this is the Matrix, right? Oh, it's <laughs> ridiculous. So can we talk a little bit about the current state of the technology and yeah. the company? Um, are you guys still evolving the product? Do you already have traction with certain customers? And yeah. What does the team look like? Yeah, so we, um, in, the, in the previous year, we're growing incredibly fast. So we went from the four founders that started the company. There's me and three other guys, and... Um, that's Sean, Matt, and James. And ultimately, we've now added 25 individuals over this past year because we closed our Series A round back in uh, April of last year, 2017. And we've onboarded over 200 enterprise customers who have 
um, helped partner with us on this technology, as well as we have got premium paying customers who are have bought our technology to use it. And we're now at this stage where we're closing our next round of investment in probably the next 30 days. Uh, we'll be growing as a company and, and doubling, if not tripling in size over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Uh, and our growth, we're forecasting about 500 to 1,000% over the next 18 months. So it just kind of shows you how fast this space is really growing. Uh, and it's certainly been quite a crazy ride along the way. Are you guys software as a service model, or how does your revenue structure work? Yeah, it's SaaS. Um, I think it's what's interesting when we created the company at first, we, we went down the route of saying we want to give enterprises the choice. You can run our technology in your own data centers or you can run it in the cloud. Most people were concerned at that time around having you know, technology like our aware platform, which is what it, the product is actually branded as um, running in the cloud because they were worried about all their messaging data going to some public cloud environment. So we gave them the option to use their own data centers and we found over time that enterprises actually, once it became comfortable with us and knew who we were as a new startup, that they started to say, why are you not full SaaS? And so we had to shift our engineering resources and start building a full SaaS infrastructure. And, uh, and we've, you know, we've done that. And uh, so now you get the option as a company, you can deploy our technology on premise or you can go full cloud. Most are going the full cloud route. And how did you guys figure out how to monetize the product? Yeah, so uh, when I uh, kind of kicked it off with the other founders at first, you know, we looked at each other and we were in a room similar to this and said, okay, guys, we've got a solution that's a minimally viable product. How do we how do we get it out there and can we sell this thing? And we looked at each other and said, what do you charge for it? And none of us had a clue, right? I, the things I had done in the past were it was not selling enterprise software. Uh, it was consumer software and that's very different. So we literally, when we um, tapped our own networks, we had a pretty strong Microsoft network at that time. Microsoft helped introduce us into some big enterprises. And uh, when we were in the negotiation rooms, trying to demoing our software and showing them the value it could add to their company, and it finally got to the point where they tried it out and then told us they wanted to buy, you kind of had that, you know, oh shit moment where you're like, okay, what, what do I, what do I charge for this thing? What do I tell them? I have no idea. And uh, we did some basic competitive analysis and tried to see what other people were charging for similar products in the space. And we, um, we amassed some, some pretty quick uh, customers in that first year by giving pretty good discounts. Uh, and at that point in time, you know, started to really understand that our, our product was probably going to be priced for a large enterprise um, somewhere between, you know, it could you know, net somewhere between 250000 a year all the way up to a million dollars a year, depending on the size of the company. Uh, and that for us was pretty exciting. I would say that, you know, as an entrepreneur is being able to finally see the fruits of your labor after you spend some time building a solution, you have a big company that validates that for you. It, that was you know, probably one of the, the most exciting times of our life was when we saw that people were recognizing that what we built was something that they would, they would actually want to use and pay for. It's probably cool that you guys made it all the way through the sales process though, and didn't I mean, I wonder if it was more productive for you because what we find a lot is that we bring pricing up at different points in the conversation to kind of experiment how it works. And you're most successful when you don't even talk about it till the closing steps, you know, because they're so, you get them so convinced in your product, a lot of times people aren't buying on price. And I think that's kind of the deceiving factor in any company. You seem to think like, okay, you know, I got something to differentiate to myself, but if somebody undercuts me, you know, I'm gonna lose, but. Exactly, so we were so focused on experience to your point, right? Get them to love the product. We want them touching it, we want them feeling it, we want them actually loving this thing along the way because it makes the pricing conversation a whole lot you know, easier. 
and now I mean, we've got a we've got a full sales team and they all come from pretty experienced backgrounds quest oracle dell they've all done the enterprise sales gig before uh, but we as founders didn't have that experience and you're testing things along the way but we felt to your point maybe you can kind of get around that if you really build a product that people just liked to, to use. And, and maybe you, you, you have or haven't seen some of this, but some of the enterprise solutions employees use today, they're not great looking. They don't look like the consumer products that we use every day. And so we said, you know, as we build an enterprise you know, capability that's specifically targeting cybersecurity, we don't want it to be something that looks stodgy and from 19, you know, 80. We want it to look like it's a consumer-grade product that does pretty amazing things. And so we spent a lot of time on making sure that, that was the case along the way. Yeah, it's definitely interesting how that user interface changes when you, like, it just doesn't make sense in my head why an enterprise system wouldn't be just as easy, if not easier, to use and have a better feel than a consumer product. But... Let's talk about some of the challenges you guys have had at Wiretap along the way. I mean, what were some of the biggest challenges, biggest hurdles you guys had? Yeah, I mean, if you look, I mean, we're relatively new, right? Mm -hmm. Even though that was fast as we're growing, but the growth thing is 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 probably something we should talk about. I mean, when you're trying to go from four employees to to twenty five or thirty in a few months, it's it's hard to find talent, right? It's hard to find people, and a lot of people say, well, there's there's Ohio State University right here, right? You got a ton of grads every year, and, and that is totally true. And there are great people graduating from Ohio State, as we all know. Um, but still, finding the right pe person for the job when you only have a certain number of positions and you only have a certain number amount of time to be successful, you got to make sure you make the right bets. Uh, so we were actually curious: could you recruit from your 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 bigger tech schools? Could you recruit from Stanford or MIT and bring them to Ohio? And we wanted to try to find out if we could. And so one of the challenges we had early on was simply getting people to recognize that Columbus specifically um, was a cool place to live. And there's good things happening here. Because when you're talking to students from Boston or you know, out west in the valley, they're thinking, why would I ever move to a flyover state? And what the hell is happening in Columbus? And so that was a big challenge is you're, you're just coming from that you know, position of defense right from the get-go is trying to convince people that, not, we didn't even talk about our company yet. I had to convince you that Ohio first was worth living in. And once you ha got over that hurdle and you sold the city of Columbus, then you could then sell them on why wiretap. Uh, and so that's been a big challenge, getting the right people on board. And uh, we've, got a lot, we've got students from Ohio State. We've got students from you know, the, the other local universities, but we've also successfully recruited from MIT and from uh, the Valley as well. So uh, for us, it was probably that. Saving Ohio for last, kind of like the price might be the best strategy on that one. Like, by the way, where are you guys located? It's not really that. I'll buy the plane ticket. You just get on, and we'll talk about it when you get here. That's a good point. We actually posed the question when we were recruiting. Um, if you walked by our booth at any of these events, and we were next to, like, Uber's autonomous vehicle division and Facebook's augmented reality team, and it's like, great, are we going to succeed? And the question we pr uh, proposed or posed to the students was, what could you do with billions of enterprise social interactions. And that was it. But when you're at Stanford or you're at MIT, I mean, those students look at that and they start coming to you and they're saying, well, I'll, let me tell you, like we can do A, B, C, and D. We had one student from MIT's media lab tell us I could predict exactly how physical unhealthiness, obesity, and smoking would move throughout the company over the next 18 months based purely upon how people interact and who interacts with whom. And we're like, what? 
I mean, at first we weren't thinking like that, but uh, you can see through the studies that they've done how that works, but it was just really interesting. Your point, yeah. You offer that kid a job? He did, yeah, and he is uh, actually now at Wiretap. He's one of our data science uh, data science um, engineers, so smart, smart, very smart. Yeah, he sounds like yeah. it. <laughs> like, I, I don't think I know how to do that, so. Uh, <laughs> I might be able to come up with the question, but I don't, right. think, I could, I don't think I could answer it. But... Uh, so let's talk a bit, little bit about future Wiretap. What are you guys' goals for the next five, ten years? What's your vision for the company? Yeah, you know, it's really making a difference. I think I, I want to make sure people recognize that the core of our company, I mean, we're aspirational as an organization, meaning we're really focused on the vision, but we don't just want to go out there and manage risk and reduce risk. We actually want to create value in the world that we live in. So the next five years for us are really getting to the point where Enterprises themselves are more valuable because our technology exists. They've either found better ways to invest in the people or the people themselves have become more effective because of our aware platform that's running throughout the company. I think we'll know 10 years from now that we're wildly successful when employees themselves and other enterprises say we're not the best that we could potentially be without the aware platform running in our in our organization. So it's like you'll have an HR technology, you know, you have a um, technology for processing expense reports, and then you've got you know our platform, which really helps you understand your people and helps people be more effective. Um, and understanding people means managing risk, but it also means adding value. And that's what we're really hyper focused on over the next you know five to ten years. Definitely. And one of the last questions we always like to ask is. Uh, Focused around the theme of our show, Jeff, which is live uncomfortably. So what does the phrase mean to you? How does it apply to your life? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's a good question because uh, one of the things I often say is you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, there are no, in the life, you know, the life that we live, there are no guideposts. You can read plenty of books, but your book has not yet been written, right? You're going to be the one that writes your book. Uh, and so... One of the things that I, I make sure that you know, I talk a lot about is, is making sure that people practice progress over perfection and being comfortable with just you know, taking the leap and just doing it. I think most people have a tendency to overthink things and think that this needs to be perfect before I go out there and, and learn you know, and go out there and, and try to do something. And, and I think it's more important to just go do it. Just, just start. Uh, and along the way, you'll learn. I mean, you probably have heard the phrase... Um, you know, having to do with it's okay to fail, and and I actually I actually don't think it's you know generally okay to fail. I think you want to you want to learn, right? You want it to be a lesson, and it's not really a failure. Um, nobody wants to fail. People want to win, and I think that's an important aspect is going along the way, and making sure that you're treating each experience in your life as a lesson that you've learned, and pushing yourself to be comfortable with being uncomfortable is an important aspect of driving towards success and it all ties back to that whole make progress don't try to be perfect you know, as you as you get to that next stage you'll uh, you'll start to recognize just how important you know you know progression is over perfection absolutely and Jeff I think that's a great place to wrap up the show we really appreciate you joining us today and conquerors I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that episode that was Jeff Schumann with his story on his entrepreneurial journey CEO and co-founder of wiretap We'll talk to you guys next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say 
thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.